Good to be here worshipping God. If you're here, student, if you're a visitor, it's great to have you with us. So we're picking up in our series, Hope for a Culture in Crisis. And this morning, the title is All in the Same Boat. It's from Paul's letter to the Roman church, church in Rome. And um, the, just as a bit of background, if you've not been here and not picked up and not followed this series... Uh, The church in Rome was started by Jewish believers after the day of Pentecost uh, in Jerusalem. God had come on them. They'd put their faith in Christ. uh, And these Jews have become believers, followers of Jesus. They go back to Rome and they start a church. And the, the, the church in Rome initially had a very Jewish feel mainly made up of Jewish uh, believers, but over time, uh, people from Greek backgrounds, uh, Roman backgrounds, started coming to faith, and the, the church began mixed, but it had a very Jewish feel. And then, uh, then Claudius the emperor expelled uh, Jews from Rome, and that included Jewish believers. There were troubles probably caused uh, between tensions between uh, the Jews in the synagogues and Jews who were becoming followers of Jesus. And so Claudius expelled them, Uh, They were expelled from Rome, and so the church in Rome started to have a very different feel. It it suddenly started to move away from its Jewish roots and had a very Gentile feel, very uh, non-Jewish feel. The believers uh, were mainly uh, from non-Jewish backgrounds. And then Nero, uh, he basically allows the Jews back into Rome, and suddenly these Jewish believers are coming back to their church, and they find their church is very different from the church that they left. And so Paul is writing into this situation and he's speaking to this church which has uh, changed its flavor and he's writing to to them. And at the beginning of the letter he writes to uh, those from a Gentile background, a non-Jewish background. And now in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, he's writing to those from a a more Jewish background. We're not going to read the passage. The passage is long, but we're going to dip into it and read bits of it as we go through and I hope that will help you. That is a first-class ticket for the Titanic. The first, uh, the maiden voyage of the Titanic, and uh, that was a first-class ticket. There were two, about just over 2,220 people on board uh, that uh, journey. Uh, The unsinkable ship sank in the North Atlantic. Around about 700 people survived. 29% of those had first-class tickets, 17% had second-class tickets, 25% had third-class tickets, and 29% were crew. First-class tickets didn't guarantee you safety. All were in the same boat. And it feels like this country has hit an iceberg. And as a society, we're slowly sinking into chaos and confusion. And in our pride, we thought it could never happen. We're now realizing the depths of the mess that we're in as a nation. And like like on the Titanic, it's not going to help us in life, whichever ticket we have been given. If we feel we've been given a first-class ticket, it's not going to help us. Is there hope? for a culture in crisis. Paul's letter to the Roman church is relevant to us today. It tells us, yes, 
And over recent weeks, we've been seeing that the issues facing the first century church in Rome, the city that they lived in, are similar to those issues that we face in 21st century Britain. Paul was writing to a church in a city that was self-obsessed. It was full of antisocial behavior. It was failing law and order at every turn. Uncontrollable violence, loose morals. And you only have to read the media headlines in this last week to convince ourselves of the similarities that we face today. And in the midst of it all, Paul presents Jesus Christ, the only hope for a culture in crisis. He declares this at the start of his letter, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, because it is the very power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, Paul wants to impress on us that the starting point for each one of us is the same. Irrespective of our background, irrespective of our ethnicity, our gender, our sexual orientation, before God, all of us are in the same boat. Some of us may have had parents who worship God and who taught us to do the same. Be grateful. I'm grateful, forever grateful for my mum who taught me to follow Jesus Christ, taught me about the gospel, about the good news. Every morning before we went to school, my mum would sit me and my sister down and she would read a little passage to us and pray with us before we went to school. My best friend who used to walk through our garden and walk to school with me used to come in and join us. And in his teens, he became a follower of Jesus and got baptised. All because of a mother who loved Jesus. We need to be grateful for godly parents. And yet for some of us, We didn't grow up in a home like that. And yet you've had the privilege, some of you, of growing up in a country where the church still had an important role to play in society. But for some who are here today, you've grown up in a world, a postmodern culture where the name of Jesus is just has been a swear word. That's all you've ever heard, and we are finding increasing numbers of people who are coming along to our Alpha courses who know nothing about Jesus, who've never read the Bible, don't understand anything about it. Paul is saying we are all in the same boat. We all need a Savior. The good news of the gospel is that the, the one who created everything, the God who created the heavens and the earth, shows No favoritism. But he loves us completely and totally and utterly. The bad news is that because of our sin, the Bible calls that rebellion, our turning against God, our living independently of the God who made us and formed us, our turning our back on him. The Bible says that because of our sin, our wrongdoing, we're in trouble before a holy God. Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. Listen to this. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even 
one. We all need rescuing. You see, all the advantages we may have had in life, living in the place that we live, they count for nothing when we measured against God's standard. God's perfect law. We all fall short, whether by a meter or a mile. None of us can reach it. The law can never make us perfect. Doing good things can never make us perfect before God, however hard we try. You see, the law's okay, the law's good. Our problem is that we're not. And we're flawed inside, and somehow we mess it up at every turn. We simply can't keep it. And if we think one day we're going to say to God, you're being unfair. How could you do that? You've set us a standard we can never reach. I want to tell you, if you think one day you're going to stand before God and you're going to argue your case, I want to, Paul tells us in chapter 3 that on that day we will all be silent. All of us will be silent. Because we've all had our opportunity to receive hope in Jesus Christ now. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And so Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, he wants to help us today, and he poses three questions. I want to draw out three questions which I think will help us today. And the first question is this, are we relying on the right thing? And in chapter 2, verses 17 to 20, from the Christian Standard Bible, this is what Paul says. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of the knowledge and the truth in the law, Paul says, be careful. Are you relying on the right thing? I, when I'm driving, I rely on two things. The first is my intuition. And my intuition tells me I know where I'm going. I know how to get there. I know roughly where it is. I have a mental map. That's, what I, that's how I talk about it. Um, the reality is it fails regularly. It fails regularly where I think I know where I'm supposed to be and I, I, I suddenly find I actually don't know where I'm going. Where's the house I'm supposed to be at? I hope I've got internet connection in that moment. The other thing I rely on is Waze. Have you ever tried relying on Waze? It's a great little app on your, uh, uh, you can get on your phone. And um, so Annie's got Waze on her phone and we were trying to get to somewhere around uh, Corehampton Way the other day and Waze takes us, so I've got a mental map, I know I want to be over there, Waze takes us up the M3. Takes us up the M3, across the A31, and then down the 272. And I'm like, this is 15 minutes outside our way. It's driving me mad. In the end, I make a switch it off, because I, my intuition, I know where we're going, and then we can't find where we need to be. <laughs> what are you relying? We, sometimes we rely on all sorts of things. We rely on the wrong things. Relying on the wrong thing will be disastrous. Paul gets personal. He says this, now if you call yourself a Jew, he gets personal. He would get personal with us today. It's easy for us to hide in the crowd. It's easy for us to hide our faces in the crowd, but Paul makes it personal. 
He's speaking to believers with a religious background. He's challenging them about what they rely on. They're relying on. You call yourself a Jew? You rely on the law? You boast in God? In the NIV, in the New King James, it says you brag about your relationship to God. You know his will. Paul's point is neither a religious background nor living a good life is enough. It will not satisfy the just anger of a holy God. On that day, familiarity with God will cut no ice. You see, Paul is putting his finger on the curse of hypocrisy. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, hypocrites only take a general theoretical or intellectual interest in the truth. It's all in the head. It's something we love talking about, but it really doesn't impact the way we live. It's a bit like that with diets. There are diets for everything these days. There is, I, I was, there's something called a water diet. Have you come across a, a water diet? It's fasting. It's basically not eating food. They call it a diet and they sell it to people. A water diet. What a great idea. I'm going to have the no chips diet and sell it. No chips. No chips and chocolate diet. I mean, it's ridiculous. The trouble is we have all these diets, but we struggle to live them out. We do it for a little while, but we give up in the end. Hypocrites, hypocrisy is, is where we, we say one thing, but somehow we don't live it out. And so Paul wants us to draw to our attention some of the warning signs, some of the warning indicators of hypocrisy. And the first is complacency. How are you doing? Great. Are you? How often have we said that when someone's asked us that question? We always feel we're doing well. There's a smugness about us. Paul hints that such a person boasts about their relationship with God, yet under the surface, all is not well. It's easy to see in others, isn't it? But we don't see it in ourselves. You see, Paul was writing to believers who were in danger of losing their awe of God. Starting to be very casual with God, they'd become complacent. Do you remember Guy Miller? He was speaking here last week, but he brought a prophetic word for us as a church, and it, it was all about a volcano, that we were on a fault line. And for some of us, it's like we've, we've, we've started to settle up the volcano because the ground's warmer and it's more fertile. And he was saying that actually the volcano's going to blow. Don't be complacent. Get down the volcano. It's time to move. It's God's going to do something. It's time to move. Don't be complacent with the power and the glory of God. Sometimes we can be complacent about God. Are we more reliant on ourselves than we are on God? The second warning light is overconfidence, an unwillingness to ask for help or to accept it. No, 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 it's okay, I'll be fine. Will you? Why can't you receive help? Overconfidence is being unaware of or not being conscious of our deficiencies, of our weaknesses. 
Everyone around us can see it, but we can't. Paul writes to people in verse 19, he says, you are convinced about that, but they were wrong. Overconfidence results in us never examining ourselves because we don't feel the need to. When we come to break bread this morning, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul says, as you come to do this, let every man examine himself. You see, when we're like that, I think there's often no signs of repentance in our lives. We think repentance, what do you mean? Actually, we live repentant lives before God because we all get it wrong all the time and we need to keep short accounts with God. The Apostle John says, do you say you have no sin? Well, you're deceiving yourself and the truth's not in you. But if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin. We need to be those who keep short account with God. We need to be those who live repentant lives. God, I messed up. Please help me today. I need your strength today. I'm aware of my weaknesses. I'm I'm not overconfident in myself, but I'm confident in you. I'm confident in the rock on which I stand, but I'm not confident in my own abilities. Overconfidence. The third warning light is performance. Hypocrisy focuses on performance. And that's why Paul highlights the tendency to focus on what we do and what we know. We so easily slip into doing that. Are we experts at putting on a performance when people are watching? We easily do it in worship, in conversations, and all the time we're broken inside. But we've got good at putting on a convincing show. We give, we serve, we turn up, yet underneath there's an emptiness, a sense of failure, disappointment, maybe frustration, anger. We manage to cap it in public, but under the surface it's there. Maybe that's you today. Paul talks about those who brag about their relationship with God, but they are no longer intimate with him. What's your intimacy with God like? And the last warning sign is superiority. You see, it's easy to get puffed up with knowledge. When writing to the Corinthians, Paul says, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he doesn't yet know it as he ought to know it. When we think we've got it all taped, we know it all, we are in trouble. We're in danger of slipping into hypocrisy. Paul says to these people, these Jewish believers, are you convinced you're a guide for the blind, a light for those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge? We can be so easily like that. Hey, look to me, I can help you. Actually, it's not the way to be. When we do that, we easily start to look down on others. We take a superior position. I wouldn't do it like that. I wouldn't do it like that. Really? Who are you to say? We're not those who point people to ourselves. We point them to Jesus Christ. Be careful. A sense of superiority is the slippery slope to hypocrisy. And the answer is humility. A right view of ourselves. This is what Paul writes later in Romans. 
Listen to this. Just want you to listen to these words. For by the grace given to me, I tell everyone among you, everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Don't think more highly of yourself. When we do that, we slip into becoming the Pharisee that Jesus warned about in his story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee comes before God. He says, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like this man over here, this terrible tax collector who's done terrible things. Jesus is not impressed. God does not hear this man. The tax collector is the opposite. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, that man's cry was heard. He had a right measure of himself. Are you relying on the right thing? The second question Paul poses, are we living up to what we say? This is what he goes on to say after those first verses we just read. You then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the Lord, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul pulls us, pulled the religious rug from under our feet. And he delivers the knockout punch. Do we practice what we preach? If we lead others, do we lead ourselves? Leaders lead. That's all a leader is. A leader is someone who leads. If you have the privilege of being married, if God's gifted you with being married and you have children, do you lead at home? Or is that the responsibility of the children's workers on a Sunday? Do you lead your children at home? If you are single, you're a student or a teenager in your 20s, 30s, 40s, do you lead yourself? If you're going to lead other people, you need to be able to lead yourself. You need to be able to follow God to be able to lead other people. Are we living up to what we say? Are we walking in the light? As 1 John chapter 1 verse 7 says, are we listening to our own instructions? In the 1980s, some of you will remember there were American TV evangelists who preached a lot about things that people shouldn't do. The really sad thing was a number were caught out doing the very things that they were telling other people not to do. It was shocking. Their hypocrisy was exposed. The name of God was blasphemed as a result. Why, why do we easily do that? Why do we not live up to what we say? You see, legalism and religiosity blind us and they can make hypocrites of us all. You see, it's very easy to warn people about walking too close to the cliff edge. It's dangerous while we ourselves are drifting ever closer to the edge itself. When we were, Annie and I had the privilege of going to the Grand Canyon, you can step over the wall and onto the rock going to the edge of the canyon. It is, I mean, it's a mile deep. 
in places. And you go to the edge and there are sheer drops and there are people taking photographs close to the edge. No, no, I'm okay. You just stand over there. People fall off taking photographs. Hypocrisy results in us not living up to what we say. Do we talk about loving others yet struggle to love those closest to us? The things we criticize, do we do, oh, the welcome's not great. The welcome wasn't great this morning, but did you welcome anyone? Oh, I, I just feel there's no sense of community. When was the last time you made an effort to invite someone round to spend time with you? No one encourages me. When was the last time that we encouraged someone else? We so easily let those things slip out of our mouths. We see unforgiveness in others, and yet all the time we're struggling with forgiving ourselves. Do we look down our noses at those battling addictions, and yet can't admit our own battles with lust? Our battles with greed. Do we talk about generosity, but rarely give ourselves? Paul wants us to stop us in our tracks. We are all in the same boat. None of us has a first-class ticket. We all need a savior. You see, these Jewish Christians knew they were God's people. The evidence was there. They'd been circumcised. That was the sign that they were one of God's people. They'd been circumcised. This outward sign of circumcision was what they relied on. Yet their faith should have been evident by their lifestyles and the intimacy of their relationship with God. You read that in chapter 2, verses 25 to verse 27. But circumcision was only ever meant to be an external sign of an internal change, something that had happened inside. You see, badges, we love badges, don't we? We love badges. In, when I was in the 70s, as I was growing up in the late 70s, badges were everything. Bands that we, we like. We used to wear them to school, but we used to have to wear them inside the lapel of our jackets because you weren't supposed to have badges. The jam, the clash, whatever. Everybody had badges like that. The sad thing was that some people who had badge, badges of the jam, the clash, they're like Fleetwood Mac. Now, for some of you who don't know who Fleetwood Mac is, but it's like middle-of-the-road rock, Okay. But it was cool to wear the badge. But inside, they didn't really like that type of music. But they wanted to be in. They wanted to put on a show. They wanted the badge. You see, does our faith stand out or do we need the badge? We can treat baptism and church membership in the same way. You see, baptism, we're going to be baptizing some young people this afternoon. It's the clearest sign that someone has already become a follower of Jesus Christ. We're turning away from our old life and we're going to live for him. And yet for many of us, we rely on baptism as a badge. Having been baptized, are our lives now noticeably different? I'm not saying that once we get baptized, we need to live a perfect life. But actually, has there been a change? Or have we just started to slip back into old ways? Church membership is not a box to tick. It's about heart commitment. This is my church. These are my people. This is my home. I was talking to someone the other Sunday night and they said to me, Steve, I want to say to you as a single person, this has been my home for the last 25 years. These are my people. 
It's a beautiful moment listening to this person talk. Membership means something. It's not a badge to wear. And Paul points to, talks to these Jews, he said, Jewish believers, he says, he says, as he's talking to them, he points to uncircumcised Gentiles, those who are non-Jewish background, who were demonstrating more faith in God by the way they were living than those he was writing to. And I think if Paul were here today, he would say to some of us, you've got the badge of being a church member. But for some of you, there are people who are on the edge of the church, not yet members, who are showing more commitment, more love for God's people than we do ourselves. Has our love grown cold? Paul's last provocation is this. Have we had a change of heart? Because we need a change of heart. For a person who's not a Jew who is one outwardly and True circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart. By the Spirit, not the letter, not what you do. It's God's Spirit does something in our hearts. That person's praise. The person who has not had their heart circumcised by the Spirit is not that person's praise is not from, well, that person's praise is from people. Our praise is, should be from God. And God wants us to be people who've had their hearts changed. Have you had your heart changed? It's about a heart change. It's not a patched up heart. It's a change of heart. That's why christening saves no one. However significant it may have been to you and your family, it saves no one. See, christening means nothing. Baby thank, the baby thanksgivings we do here in the church are only good because we're giving thanks for the birth of a baby and we're praying for a heart change in this little one's life as they grow up, that they will encounter Christ one day for themselves. Baptism is significant because there has been a change of heart. See, I'm convinced that church membership is important, but only when there's genuine heart connection. I'm shocked when people have been here three months and they say, oh, we're going to go somewhere else. I thought there was a heart connection. This is my church, not because I have the privilege of leading a team of elders. It's my home. Annie and I are part of you. You're our family. Yet it means nothing if I don't have a living and vibrant relationship with God for myself. I need to have a healthy heart. What does a healthy heart look like? It's a heart of worship, a lifestyle of worship. This morning, we were provoked about singing God is good. Some of you may be thinking, oh, we're not going to repeat that again, are we? We need to repeat it because our hearts, get, our hearts get hard. It needs to penetrate the hardness of our God is good. He is more good than you ever deserved. He's kinder than we could ever imagine. We need to have a lifestyle of worship. Dave and Jane Gagel, some of you will know. For those of you who don't know, Jane has had a debilitating disease this last year. I mean, it's been awful to watch. The other Sunday, Fran organized just for a few people to go and do church at their house on a Sunday morning, a Sunday afternoon. 
And we, about 15 of us in the room, we worship. I tell you, in that moment, the worship was beautiful. I was watching two people whose lives have been rubbish for this last year, lost in wonder, love, and praise. That's a lifestyle of worship when things are not going well. How hungry are we to worship God? And I'm going to say this not to make you feel guilty, but just to make the point. We have 35 minutes, 30 minutes to worship God on a Sunday morning. And yet at 10 o'clock, there are 30% of us here. Now, maybe that's about the traffic. Maybe that's about busy lives. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, but I'm just trying to make the point. How passionate are you about worshiping God? How much does worshiping God mean to you? What's our prayer life like? Are we crying out for God to be merciful? I mean, if there's anything we need as a nation at this moment, it's the mercy and kindness of God. We deserve nothing. Our nation is in a mess. Are we crying out for God to break out, to bless our nation? Come and visit our nation again. Our nation doesn't need clever ideas, doesn't need more social programs. It needs the gospel. The only hope for our nation, for this culture in crisis, is Jesus Christ. It's the only hope. Are we people who are seeking God's face for our nation, for our city, for our church, for our, ourselves. We need a saviour. In Romans chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, Paul goes on to encourage his listeners not to give in to despair. And I want to just read this to you. So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First they were entrusted with the very words of God. You see, for some of these Jewish believers, they were, they were start, Paul was sent and they might start to despair. What's the point then of our heritage? Paul says there is every reason to be proud of your heritage, your Christian heritage. We should be proud of our Christian heritage as a nation. It may not be evident at the moment, but we have a Christian heritage. Paul says of the Jews, you were those who received the very words of God, the oracles of God, it says in uh, the new King James Version. God spoke to them. We're a nation. God has spoken to us in the past. We may be dull to his hearing at the moment, but God spoke to us. We need to be a nation who once again turn our ears to listen to the voice of God. If our ears become full of spiritual wax, that we don't hear the voice of God anymore. God, God is a God who speaks today. And he's speaking to us and he's calling us to turn back to him. Us here today, this morning, to walk with him. And he's calling this nation. They may not hear it, but he's calling them, turn back to me. You see, we slip so easily into being dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. And in the, the last defense of the religious hypocrite is to justify their passivity. And the argument goes like this. God is perfect. We may be grubby by comparison, but... It does highlight how perfect God is by comparison, because we're grubby, he's perfect. We actually, it just shows him up for being how good, a good God. 
and how merciful he is by forgiving us. And they go on to say in verse 5 of chapter 3, our unrighteousness highlights God's unrighteousness. Sorry, our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness. We don't have to do anything effectively. They're saying it's all about grace. It's all about grace. It's a terrible argument. And we think, oh, that's not relevant to us. We don't do it. Sadly, I just want to suggest we all are prone to do that. We don't need to do anything. It's all about grace. I don't need to get involved in serving. It's all about grace. I don't need to help with the children's work. It's all about grace. I don't need to help about welcome. It's all about grace. I don't need to do that. It's about grace. We're absolutely right, of course. It is about grace. But Paul would say, be careful. Be careful. Let us be prepared to examine our heart. Let us hear the voice of God. What does God have to say to us? What does he want from us? Let me give you an example. A few weeks ago, I asked Annie. Someone had asked Annie to do something, and she said no, she didn't want to do it. I said to her, hey, hey, Annie, um, I think it would be a good idea. How about you doing that? She just went, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't need to do it. I'm thinking, actually, she's right. She doesn't have to do it if she doesn't want to. That's fine. And then about two or three days later, she comes back to me and she says, Steve, you know what you said about the other day? And I said, yes, she said, I'm going to do it. I said, why is that? She said, God spoke to me. She said, God told me, he said, I need need to do that. That's how it should be. We don't do it because others are telling us, but we're listening to the voice of God. What is God saying to me? Examine our hearts. God, what are you saying to me? Where do you want me to get involved? We're not doing it. I mean, sometimes we help out because the help is needed, but what is God saying to us? God doesn't want us to be those who are passive and fall into a trap that that the devil so easily wants us to fall into. He wants us to become passive. Paul, when he writes to the Galatians who had fallen into that trap, he says to them, the only thing that counts is faith outworking itself through love. You need to hear what God says and do what God says out of a heart of love for him. Doing it out of grace. Paul's warning is if we cheapen grace, we get what we deserve. Grace means we only do what we do because we love God with all our heart, mind and strength and we love our neighbour as ourselves. Our love for God shows itself in our intimacy with God through hearing his voice, through our relationship with other believers and practically in our actions. We are all in the same boat. Are we relying on the right thing? God doesn't want us to be hypocrites. Jesus said to some of the people he was speaking to, he says, you hypocrites, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when you said, this people honour me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. His challenge to us today is where is your heart? Are we living up to what we say? Have we had a heart change? Have we had heart surgery at the cross? And it's at the cross where Jesus paid the price for us, where we totally throw ourselves on God's mercy and God's kindness and God's grace demonstrated to us in his son dying on our behalf. 
that we receive mercy and grace and God's help and a heart change. We're going to break bread. Jonathan's going to lead us through breaking bread in a moment. But I just want to read some scripture to you. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. We're going to take a moment of just reflection and Jonathan's then going to come and lead us through breaking of bread. Joe's going to play in the background. But take this moment to examine yourself before God. Holy Spirit, come and search our hearts. David's great prayer was, search me and try me, O God. If there is anything, any way within me, anything that offends you, bring it to light. Take this moment to allow God's spirit to search you, examine yourself before God. And then we're going to come to the cross. Remember Jesus, his blood shed for us, body broken for us.